This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Welcome back to How We Got Here, Episode 6 of Season 2. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, an investigative reporter with the TV station NBC12 in Richmond. And I want to start with thanking all of you who have subscribed, reviewed us, and even reached out. We love making this podcast, and you guys make it possible. This week, we are turning back the clock on December 23rd through the 29th. The circus was a lucrative business in the late 1800s and first half of the 20th century. Perhaps the most dominant form of entertainment in its time. But apart from the well-documented cases of animal abuse, there's a dark corner of that big tent that was shrouded in mystery and wonder until the story of two Virginia boys finally got its chance in the spotlight. And we have a special guest on this segment of How We Got Here. Many of you know him from the TV screen, but most people follow along on his Facebook page, one of the most popular news personalities on the social media site in the country. I'm Kurt Autry, and we're here to talk about the Muse Brothers. So I've worked with Kurt for 12 years now, and I can tell you one thing. He loves to tell a good story. Two young brothers who were abducted from the tobacco fields when they were very young, just six and nine years old, working alongside of their family when this man with a circus who was in town came by and snatched them up because he thought they would be a great attraction in his freak show. Kurt found out about this story through a book called True Vine, authored by a journalist in Roanoke named Beth Macy. And it's fascinating. I got this book and I couldn't put it down. And we're including it in this episode because one of the Muse brothers was born on December 24th, 1890. That's according to a headstone in a Roanoke, Virginia cemetery. The birth records have never been found. But let's jump ahead to 1899. George and Willie Muse, ages six and nine, were working in the fields of Franklin County, Virginia. The tiny community where they lived was called Truvine. These two young boys were lured away because they were albino children. And they were African-American albino children with long dreadlocks and unusual looking eyes and very uh, unusual looking facial features. Their skin was light and pale, their hair almost like a bleached blonde, and it was 1899 in the South. Already a place African-Americans were terrorized by Jim Crow laws and prejudice. The man behind the kidnapping was named James Candy Shelton, known as a freak hunter. He traveled with the circus, and he would go into these little towns and look for people, and sadly, he would look for people who were deformed, people who were oddities, 
things that you've heard from circus years of days gone by, women with beards, you know, flipper boy who maybe didn't have arms, but, you know, he would sell him as a half man, half penguin kind of thing. And, you know, it, it was an, an awful time is what it was. And he saw these two young boys as a potential gold mine in his traveling circus as part of his freak show. Legend has it he lured the boys away with candy, forcing them into performing with the circus, something they would go on to do for decades. For most of their time on the road, they were billed as Eco and Ico, ambassadors from Mars who were found coming out of a spaceship in the Mojave Desert. But in Macy's book, she talks about another theory of why the boys ended up in the circus. That perhaps George and Willie's mother initially gave her boys to Shelton in exchange for pay. Macy credits a notice or advertisement in a billboard magazine from 1949, where a mother writes that her sons, known as Eco and Ico, have gone off with some showmen, but were supposed to be returned to her, and she wanted them back. It's worth noting that their mother, Harriet, was illiterate, so how that ended up in the magazine remains a mystery. But long after their time in the circus, Willie Muse always said that he and his brother were stolen by Shelton. And as awful as that is, the story of their time in the circus gets decidedly worse. They weren't just shown off as space aliens in front of circus-going crowds sometimes be these cannibals from Ecuador and sometimes they would be you know Darwin's missing links and it would just change from city to city and they would play along for the first couple of years they didn't even get a nickel they weren't even paid they were just people who were kidnapped and placed into servitude against their will people would pay at the time like a couple of bucks but circus goers paid the equivalent of what would have been $30 in today's money to actually be photographed with Ico and Ico. So think about that. I mean, that was a lot of money back in the day. So our equivalent of $30, it, it was like the selfie rage in 1927. You know, you'd pay 30 bucks so you could have your picture taken with these freaks who you were tricked into thinking were cannibals from Ecuador. It was very racist. It was very abusive. It was a bad, bad time. Paying customers would pull on their long blonde dreadlocks and stare at their pale skin and unusual eyes. The Muse brothers were told their mother was dead, a ploy to keep them from thinking about going home. But in 1927, 28 years after they were taken from Truvine, the Ringling Brothers Circus was making a stop in nearby Roanoke, where unbeknownst to them, their mother was living at the time. The story passed down through generations of the family goes like this. George and Willie were performing on musical instruments when they noticed a black woman elbowing her way to the front of the mostly white crowd. That's when George realized who he was looking at. He turned to his brother and said, there's our dear old mother, look Willie, she's not dead. They laid down their instruments and rushed to hug the woman who brought them into the world. A mother's love they hadn't felt in years. 
Harriet Muse was there to take them home. But the circus wasn't about to let their profitable performers go without a fight. Macy writes that eight policemen showed up and the top cop in Roanoke at the time was the founder of the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Behind the police came droves of lawyers from Ringling Brothers to protect what they saw as their assets. But somehow Harriet was able to convince everyone that George and Willie were in fact her children, and she was finally allowed to bring them home. Just days later, she filed a lawsuit for back wages against Ringling Brothers and the man who took them. Her lawyer argued that her sons had been held against their will and turned into slaves. The circus agreed to a settlement, the details of which have never been made public. But George and Willie were finally getting the money they had worked for for years. The Muse brothers would go back to the circus in 1928, this time on their own terms. The Eco and Ico Act proved lucrative for decades, keeping them in work until the late 1950s. The brothers became totally blind later in life, and George, he passed away in the early 1970s. As for Willie, he outlasted everyone who exploited him. But keep in mind, this is a guy who was alive and well in Roanoke until his death at the ripe old age of 108. He was still around in 2001. So you think about that. It was just 18 years ago that Willie was still alive at the age of 108, a guy who had been kidnapped in a tobacco field and billed as a freak for decades. There's a photo of Willie in his later years. It's a stark contrast to how he was billed for decades. And this is Willie as a man over 100 years old with his head shaved and kind of barrel chested. And in this picture, he doesn't look anything like, you know, the early freak show, sideshow that he was, you know, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s. He just looks like somebody's grandpa. And we all know what has happened to the circus in the years since his death. The circus is dead. I mean, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey has been really put out to pasture. The days of them coming down on the rail cars into Richmond and parading these elephants to the downtown arena, to the Coliseum, and thousands of children coming out for a week of performances. People don't have a stomach for that anymore. People find it to be cruel and very unusual to see animals, you know, caged like that. Lions and bears forced to ride tricycles and, you know, elephants performing tricks. Really, it's a cruel process. It is and it always has been. And we're just now at a place where we've deemed it so. Because of Kurt's online clout, my producer Colton posed an interesting question about the evolution of our ideas of the circus. Could we argue that today's circus is on the internet? Yeah, that might be a good point. Yeah, the freak show is now on the internet. It's an, it no longer travels with Barnum and Bailey, which is probably a good thing. Whether they were kidnapped or handed over for a price, the racism in the Jim Crow South is as obvious as the sight of a massive tent 
going up outside of town. As the three rings of the circus each crumbled in our lifetime, remember the Muse brothers, two Virginia boys exploited for decades for looking different than the status quo. Much like an aging quarterback in the NFL, think Brett Favre. General George Washington actually came out of retirement to lead the fledgling country he helped create. It all started on December 23, 1783. It was on that date Washington resigned his commission from Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. <laughs> to return to private life, at his Mount Vernon estate in Virginia. He had been away from home for nine years, fighting the Revolutionary War, which came to an end when British General Charles Cornwallis surrendered at the Siege of Yorktown in October 1781. But the British did not recognize American independence until the Treaty of Paris in September of 1783. Which is why Washington stayed at the helm of the army after Yorktown. He was waiting for peace. When the last British ships left New York in early December 1783, Washington headed south to Annapolis, Maryland, where Congress was convening at the time. Crowds of people congratulated him on the victory over the Redcoats as he rode by. When he arrived on December 19th, Washington asked Congress if he should resign with a letter or a public address. The next day, Congress decided it would be in front of a public audience on December 23rd, but a public entertainment 1783's way of saying party, would be held the day before. Lawmakers wrote about the elegant dinner, saying about 200 people were there. There were 13 toasts, which were enjoyed alongside 13 cannons firing in celebration. One delegate even wrote that Washington participated in every dance, so that the ladies might have the pleasure of dancing with the revered general and maybe, quote, get a touch of him. The next day was incredibly important. Just think about it. The commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, which had defeated the mighty British just two years prior, was willingly surrendering power back to the government that first appointed him. This moment established civilian authority over the military via Congress, a fundamental principle of democracy. Thomas Jefferson was part of the committee that helped plan the momentous occasion on December 23, 1783. It was organized in such a way to emphasize the power of Congress. Most evident in how the voluntary resignation was required to end, with Washington bowing to Congress, with none of the lawmakers bowing back. George Washington's speech that day was highly emotional. His voice faltered. Congressman wrote, 
about a most copious shedding of tears. The legendary general famously ended his resignation by saying, quote, Having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. Washington bowed to Congress and said goodbye. The following day, he left Annapolis, heading to Mount Vernon for Christmas. The news of Washington's resignation spread around the globe. And what astonishing news it would have been. A man who had a pivotal role in leading a country towards independence, giving up his political power to return to his plantation. When King George III in Britain found out, he reportedly told an American-born artist, if Washington does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. The King of Britain, calling the man who defeated his army the greatest in the world. It just gives you the chills. What a statement. The almost romantic scene in Annapolis was immortalized by the artist John Trumbull in the early 1820s. His painting titled General George Washington, Resigning His Commission, is on display in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. But Washington's retirement would not last long. In 1787, he was elected president of the Constitutional Convention. Once the Constitution was ratified, he was unanimously elected as the first president of the United States. And sworn in in 1789. He would serve his country for two four-year terms before once again voluntarily giving up power. But this time, would be the last. Two years and nine months later, he died in Virginia. December 23, 1783. General George Washington steps away from the public spotlight to go back to private life for the first time in almost a decade. He would arrive home to Martha at Mount Vernon late in the day on Christmas Eve. How's that for the ultimate Hallmark movie moment? If you were born in Virginia, you have something in common with eight U.S. presidents. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Harrison, Tyler, Taylor, and Wilson. The Commonwealth holds the title of producing the most commanders-in-chief of all the 50 states. But it's been more than 160 years since a Virginia-born president entered our world. The last one coming on December 28, 1856, the day Thomas Woodrow Wilson was born. I'm Andrew Phillips. I'm the curator for the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library. Uh, we're in Stanton, Virginia. 
little town in the Shenandoah Valley, and the Presidential Library is here because Woodrow Wilson was born here. Wilson, unlike the other Virginia-born presidents, has very shallow roots in the country, I suppose, in that in that sense. He's not descended from folks who were here before the revolution or, you know, going back to Jamestown or uh, anything like that. But he still is very much a product of the place. That sort of Scots-Irish heritage that was very prominent is very prominent in the Shenandoah Valley. And those shallow roots to the country meant his family was often on the move. He lived here for only about 16 months, so we're milking that for all we can, but uh, he considered this place to be his home, visited quite a bit, both as a young man and then once right before he becomes president, and uh, always considered himself to be a Virginian despite only living in the state for a brief amount of time. Before we get too far into Wilson's story, we have to tell you a little more about Andrew Phillips. I am a native Virginian, though I was born in Arlington County, so I don't know if uh, others in the state consider me to be so. Mmm, we'll take him. I'm here because I was a student of American history, particularly the Civil War and slavery's role in that conflict, and couldn't find health insurance doing that. Um, so I, I found the job here. It's the dream, right? Health insurance that doesn't cost a billion dollars for a sore throat. I digress. I was looking for you know, full-time museum work. The problem with being a curator is that uh, when people get into a job like this, they tend to stay in it for a very long time. So it was more sort of just waiting for my opportunity, and that came in the form of uh, Woodrow Wilson. He is you know, very academic and so seems very stoic, not an especially interesting person to like get to know, you know, one-on-one, you know, you talk about what president would you like to have a beer with? And Wilson is not going to top that list. Great question, right? Who would be your top three presidents to grab a beer with? Hmm, that's one you got to think about. Back to Woodrow Wilson. There's a lot of depth to him. There are lots of good reasons, I guess you could say like him, to be appreciative of things that he did. And there are also equally good reasons to absolutely despise him. But to understand him later in life, let's look back at how he grew up. But his father is a minister, grows up in Ohio, meets his mother, Jessie Woodrow. That's where Woodrow comes from. It was her maiden name. In Ohio, and they get married. Wherever Woodrow's dad gets a church job, the family follows. Joseph Ruggles, the father, is an interesting character because his father, Woodrow Wilson's uh, paternal grandfather, ran an essentially anti-slavery newspaper in Southern Ohio, but Woodrow's father is very pro-slavery, without much, to the best of our knowledge anyway, a connection or exposure to it. But he will later uh, give some very fiery sermons about biblical justifications for slavery. He serves briefly as a chaplain in the Confederate Army, and I don't know why, exactly how that came about, uh, that's a bit of a mystery. For all I know, it's one of the. I have cousins who are very uh, uh, devoted Dallas Cowboys fans solely because their father is a Washington Redskins fan. It may be something like that. It may be something more serious, some rift in the family. They come to Stanton, are here from 1855 until 1858. And in their short time here, the Wilsons welcome a baby boy. At birth, 
His name is Thomas Woodrow Wilson. Both his mother's father and favorite brother are named Thomas, so we're not totally sure which is which. He goes by Tommy for, for many years. And it's clear that he was at least thinking about a career in politics. We have doodles of his sort of like writing in the margins uh, of a book and was inventing a future calling card for himself where he writes out Thomas Woodrow Wilson, senator from Virginia, I think is what he was initially um, wanting to do. At this point, the Wilson family moved to Augusta, Georgia. And that's where the future president will spend his time during the Civil War and the early years of Reconstruction. He's the last, or really the only, U.S. president to have been considered a Confederate citizen prior to becoming president of the United States. Obviously, he is very young. It's not like he served in the Army. It means he, while living in Georgia, he sees the Civil War in a very different way than really any other president has ever seen war. He sees it as a civilian on the losing side. The family would move from Georgia to South Carolina. Tommy Wilson would begin his college career in North Carolina with a slight change. I guess he feels it's diminutive, and so he just goes by Woodrow. He never officially changes his name, but even, you know, as official, you know, unofficial papers of the President of the United States, he's not signing it T. Woodrow Wilson. It totally drops the Thomas. He starts at Davidson College, but he doesn't stick around long. And he transfers to Princeton, which uh, he loves. He'll later go to UVA briefly, and he'll get his PhD at Johns Hopkins, but the only academic environment he ever seems to have really loved was uh, Princeton. We had to ask Phillips about Wilson's time at UVA, and we were not disappointed. He liked, I think, the idea of UVA more than he liked it actually being there. He wasn't happy at UVA. He was sick a lot. Uh, one of the things he does do is Charlottesville is just over the mountain from uh, Stanton, and so he'll take the train and he comes up to Stanton. He claims it's to visit some members of his mother's family who are living in the area, but it's mostly to visit a young woman uh, named Hattie Woodrow, who is going to what's now Mary Baldwin University here in town, actually just across the street from the presidential library in the house where he was born. If Hattie's last name sounds familiar, it really should. Get ready. We were shocked by this one, too. She, yeah, she was, she was the first cousin. She was related on his mother's side. I think he was there visiting family and was taken with her. The letters that I've read, she's not reciprocating. She is being friendly to her cousin, I suppose you could say. And eventually she's very clear she is not interested uh, in his advances. He backs off, uh, I will at least. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't keep bothering her. Uh, and eventually will go on to marry uh, a woman who is in no way related to him, which is uh, a plus. You know you love a good rabbit hole on how we got here, and here we go. We asked Phillips about Wilson's personality behind the scenes and got the answer we somewhat expected. His humor was fairly dry, but he liked doing humorous songs and things. One of his favorite limerick, limericks was, I sat next to the Duchess at tea. It was just as I feared it would be. Her rumblings, abdominal, were truly phenomenal, and everyone thought it was me. <laughs> that is humor from the early 1900s. <laughs> anyway, perhaps it was the first cousin rejection. Ew. 
or the fact that Wilson saw a legal career as somewhat distasteful. But his time at UVA was short-lived. He leaves UVA after a year and continues to study on his own. He never graduates, never receives a degree from UVA, but studies on his own and will about a year, year and a half-ish later, he passes the bar in Georgia. He spends a short time in Atlanta as an unremarkable attorney, but it is where he meets his first wife, Ellen Louise Axon, a remarkable woman who helped him get his PhD at Johns Hopkins with a career not focused on law, but academia. He'll teach at a couple of colleges before winding up teaching at Princeton. In 1902, Wilson's first stint as a president, but not of the country. He worked his way up the ladder at Princeton, leading the college until 1910. After that, he became governor of New Jersey. And finally, So in 1912, he's elected President of the United States. Back then, inauguration was not until March, so he had quite a bit of time on his hands. He's the, only the second Democrat to be elected since the end of the Civil War. Uh, he gets invited all sorts of places to celebrate his victory, but the only one that he accepts is the one to come to Stanton. He vacations in Bermuda after winning the election, and then he comes home to the Commonwealth to celebrate his presidential victory and his 56th birthday. They built columns on the main street to welcome him, and there's more bunting per square foot than anywhere else in the country. It's, you know, a small town boy makes good and then comes home to celebrate story. And it wouldn't be a trip to your hometown without staying in your old bedroom, right? Well, kind of. And he stays in the home where he was born. He stays in the room that would have been his father's uh, study. They offer to let him stay in the room where he was born, but that's on the main floor and everyone's already trying to get a good look at him. Uh, so he, he and his wife uh, opt for privacy. But it was in that very home where some of Wilson's less than lovely thoughts on race and segregation came to be. One of the most important aspects of Woodrow Wilson's early life that tends to be surprising to people is the fact that he is born in a home where there are enslaved people living and working. The First Presbyterian Church of Stanton leased three people to be, unfortunately, I mean, a perk of the job for their minister in the same way that the house was. We know there was a, a cook and then two children, um, a young woman and a young man who helped out around the house. Think about that. A president who served in the Oval Office less than a century ago grew up with slaves in his Virginia home. Having that connection to the Civil War and considering his later views and actions regarding things like civil rights, it's important to look at where he came from so you can understand him in context. Certainly not excuse him, but we, we wonder how he's not as progressive as we think he should be when he's also you know, born into and initially grows up in a society where slavery is common, is the underpinning for the society, uh, really. Throughout his life, Wilson always saw himself as a native Virginian. He has a quote that I think is sort of awkward wording. 
it's that a man's rootage is more important than his leafage. And he was uh, writing that, sort of talking about where he comes from. He would marry his second wife, Edith Bowling Galt, in 1915. And she has a story that could have a segment on how we got here all to herself. Let's just say there's a lot of speculation that she was making presidential decisions for the country after her husband suffered a debilitating stroke. She screened his mail and official papers, and some say she even forged his signature, though she insisted that was not the case. President Woodrow Wilson would lead the United States into World War I in 1917. He would propose the creation of the League of Nations in an effort for European peace, winning a Nobel Peace Prize in 1919. But he was unable to persuade Congress to allow the U.S. to join. December 28, 1856. The man who would go on to become the eighth and final Virginia-born president opens his eyes for the first time in Stanton. And although his life and career would take him all around the United States, Woodrow Wilson always considered Virginia home. The year is 1811. The city of Richmond is home to just under 10,000 people. And the theater is the biggest form of entertainment at the time. But the day after Christmas that year would mark the deadliest urban disaster the country had ever seen. It happened at the Richmond Theater, which sat on the corner of what is now Broad and 12th Streets, just north of Capitol Square. And on December 26, 1811, fire ripped through the packed playhouse. So how do we get to that point? A three-story brick theater opened in 1806. It's 90 feet long, 50 feet wide, and 30 feet tall. This new theater could hold about 500 people. And it was made possible through fundraising efforts by none other than Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court John Marshall. He did this because the original theater burned down in 1798. But that's not the disaster we're talking about. Jump ahead to December 1811. The rebuilt Richmond Theater was up and running for five years now. And a popular theater troupe was in town to perform. Quick rabbit hole here. One of the more prominent players was Elizabeth Hopkins Poe. But she contracted what may have been pneumonia and died on December 8th in Richmond. She left behind three children, one of them future literary legend, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe's mother is buried at St. John's Church, and you can visit her grave today. Back to our story. The company performed in the theater several nights a week, and December 26, 1811 was no different. 
The program featured two full-length plays that were separated by four short musical numbers. A night on the town that could have lasted as long as five hours. That night, more than 600 people packed into the theater, representing more than 6% of the city's entire population. There were people of all backgrounds there, from the newly elected governor, George William Smith, to slaves. The last play of the night was a pantomime, often used in the holiday season and considered suitable for the entire family. Much of the audience was made up of women and children. Shortly after 10 o'clock, the curtain closed on the final act of the final play. A stagehand was told to raise the chandelier, which held two candles. Only one was lit, but it wasn't extinguished before the chandelier was lifted. The open flame found part of the 34 backdrops that were hanging above the stage, painted with oil on canvas. The actors took the stage for the second act, and multiple witnesses recall hearing a general cry of fire, followed by assurances, it's a false alarm. It was no false alarm. Within minutes, the roof of the theater caught fire from a performance of pantomime to pandemonium. And the theater's design only made things worse for the 518 adults and 80 children inside. You can see where this is going. A single narrow staircase was the only way up and down from the box seats. And the building had only three exits one behind the stage, another for the gallery, and the front door that opened inward rather than outward, a lethal flaw. Witnesses report that some people higher up were too frightened to jump, so paralyzed with terror, they died in their seats. That single staircase to and from the box seats quickly collapsed beneath the weight of the people trying to get out creating a mass of at least a dozen bodies that were quickly consumed by the flames. Some tried to jump out of the few small windows, and while some did escape that way, several were killed by the fall. One woman jumped to safety, only to be crushed to death by people who jumped and landed on top of her. But within all the death and destruction, stories of heroes Gilbert Hunt was an enslaved blacksmith who ran towards the theater, finding a ladder along the way. A doctor inside the theater helped rescue women and children by handing them down to Hunt, saving at least a dozen people. That doctor who survived would later write that the scene surpassed anything he ever saw. Wild shrieks of hopeless agony, uplifted hands, and earnest prayer for mercy, for pardon, for salvation. Some men who escaped would go back into the Richmond Theater in an attempt to save family, friends, even strangers. Such was the case for Virginia's new governor, who was spotted outside the building, 
but was later found dead inside. Scholars guess the blaze reached temperatures of more than 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Bodies were reduced to ash, only identifiable through jewelry or a patch of clothing. The governor only identified by a buckle he had been wearing that fateful night. At least 72 people died, with some arguing the number is north of 75. 54 of them were women and girls. Most were wealthy, upper-class Richmonders, along with the governor, a former senator and president of the Bank of Virginia, and a lawyer who helped defend Aaron Burr in his 1807 treason trial. No family suffered as many losses as the Jacobs family. Joseph, a local businessman, perished along with his 17-year-old daughter, four-year-old granddaughter, and two nieces, one of whom was a mother of four, the other just five years old. The flames did not discriminate. One witness wrote about the mass of half-burned bodies, young and old, slave and free, rich and poor, big and small, all lying together, lifeless. An investigation was completed five days later, on New Year's Eve, not blaming the theater company for raising a lit candle above the stage, but instead pointing to the design of the theater. As a way of mourning the victims, the city of Richmond banned any theater productions for four months. Chief Justice John Marshall, who led the effort to get the theater built, was determined to build a memorial to those who died. It was completed in 1814 and still stands today in the same place where the Richmond Theater once stood, now known as Monumental Church. The committee in charge of burying the dead decided the bodies could not be removed from the site of the fire. They remain there today in a basement crypt. The names of the victims forever etched into the stone used to build it. December 26, 1811, a night of holiday merriment and festivities turned into an evening of terror and death. More than 200 years after the deadliest urban disaster in American history at the time, the Richmond Theater fire is slowly fading from memory. But its scar is forever burned into the makeup of Richmond's deep history. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. What another great season of How We Got Here. Don't worry, we have a bonus episode for you next week. This podcast would not be possible without my cohorts. Whistling, fast-talking, writer extraordinaire, executive producer Colton Weekly. And patient, no deadline needed, mixing master, digital director, Kate Albright. Thank you both for everything. Also, our guest this week, the esteemed Andrew Phillips, the curator of the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library, and to Kurt Autry, who loves to talk about how we got here on TV. If you don't know why I said it that way, go check out his Facebook page. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. 
You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.